Well, good evening, everyone. It's good to see you here on this Friday evening. Uh, before we study God's Word together, though, I just wanted to make sure that uh, we have uh, room for some additional announcements. So the first announcement is that due to um, just a lot of different events on our church calendar, um, and whether it's you know church or even our fellowship group, uh, our Friday night schedule is going to be a little bit different. We already have the um, discussion group dinners next week, uh, but then the following weeks, we're also going to have stuff like um, like the North Creek Conference, and we will also have church family retreat. And so because of that, uh, we're going to change up our schedule just a little bit. Uh, tonight is the last night that we will be uh, doing um, a message in the stewardship series. Uh, and so we'll, we're not going to go back into Mark right away. We're going to uh, have like a little mini-series in 3 John, uh, and uh, also we're going to have a few hangout nights as well. Uh, by the way, for retreat, I'm sure some of you saw Archie's email, and if it was too long to read, basically he was just saying, please sign up for retreat as soon as possible if you know you're going to go, just because we need to figure out all the housing, situ uh, all the housing things. So uh, yeah, just a reminder not to wait till the last minute, but if you could uh, sign up as soon as possible, that's okay. Uh, I mean, that, that would be great. Not okay. That would be great. Um, but anyways, once things settled, settled down in terms of our, our calendar, uh, in uh, late October, that's when we will resume our preaching series in the book of March. Now, the second announcement that I want to make is a bit of a shepherding moment kind of announcement. Um, but uh, if you're new here to join heirs and, um, you know, and you're kind of like weirded out by all these like people coming up to you saying like, hey, are you leaving yet? And can I walk you to your cars? Like, you know, it, it's, it's something that we encourage uh, the guys to do because we want to make sure that you get home safe. Uh, if, whether it's to your car or whether it's to your ride share, whatever it is, uh, we want to make sure that we can serve you and uh, make sure that we can take care of you. Uh, so, um, you know, we, we just want to make sure that everyone who attends our fellowship is safe. Yes, this church is in a more residential neighborhood, uh, and it is generally safer, but we do want anyone who has mischief on their minds to have to think twice if they're going to do something, which is why we try and encourage groups to go walk back to cars. So I know, at least for some of, some of you ladies, you have all your, you know, self-defense things, uh, your mace, your, um, you know, your knives and other pokey things. Uh, but, you know, out of, out, of, out of love for you, please let uh, some of these brothers and you know, fellow sisters come alongside you and walk you to your car. If you come here through rideshare, you know, um, and we offer to, um, to drive you back home, we're not trying to be weird. We're just trying to make sure that we take care of you. So uh, don't, pl please don't feel embarrassed um, or feel that you're being an inconvenience. You're not. Uh, we just want to make sure that you're safe when you go back home. Um, and for the brothers, uh, just be more mindful. If you see some sisters leaving, don't think like, oh, whatever, it's fine, right? Just be a little more aware of that and see if she's leaving um, and uh, see if you can get a group of people to go and walk her to her car. Uh, sisters, if you're a little nervous about, like, asking for yourself, feel free to grab another sister and then see if you can get the guys to come along with you, okay? Um, so anyways, just a minor shepherding note, but it's just something that we want to make sure that we continue to do to look out for everyone who comes to worship with us on a Friday night. Um, yeah, it's mostly mostly familiar people uh, here, but anyways, I just want to make that announcement just to reiterate why we do that. Uh, it's a lot, it's a, it allows for uh, our brothers to be able to serve and protect, um, and it's a practical way where we can care. Okay, so just a, a reminder for, for all of us, all right? Well, with that being said, uh, we are going to 
uh, look into God's word together this evening. Um, as I mentioned earlier, this uh, Friday evening is our last evening in our stewardship series. And uh, we're going to close our series with uh, the stewardship of the gospel. Now, if you want to think of it this way, every topic that we've covered so far in our stewardship series is an extension of what we're covering tonight. Right? It's the stewardship of the gospel that leads to a good stewardship of teaching, Christian liberty, talent, mind, time, peacemaking, work, friendships, suffering, and money. Without the gospel, all these things don't really make, you know, don't really make sense. It doesn't really matter. Right? It's just good moral ideas. Uh, but with the gospel, it means everything. Right? It, it ties everything together. It gives us the reason for why we do all these things. And so uh, it might seem a little weird that we're wrapping up our series with the gospel since it seems to be, the, it, should, it should have been the launch point, but it's actually one of the most fitting things uh, to, to end on just because, uh, as one pastor put it, we never graduate from our need for the gospel. Or we never graduate from our need for the gospel. Even though we may have mastered how much, um, or even though we may have mastered some of the intellectual aspects of the gospel, uh, we've not mastered all the ways that it works out in our lives. And so that's the reason why uh, we want to make sure that we can, re- we, we can go through the gospels once more. Right? Just because you can recite the gospel does not mean that you consistently apply the gospel to your life, uh, to our lives, really. Right, so the gospel must be central to all of our lives. Um, as a central aspect of our lives, and, and um, you know, something that has an impact on everything that we do, the gospel, if you will, has certain demands upon our lives. Right? The gospel has certain demands upon our lives. It's not something that we can believe right, and then just cast aside. It's not an issue of, I prayed the prayer, and now I can live however I want. The gospel demands that we respond to it, not just at the moment of salvation, but also in the moments afterwards. And so those of us who are genuinely saved must allow the gospel to change every element of our lives so that we can be conformed to the image of Christ. And so while there are many many demands that the gospel can have on our lives, uh, we're going to focus on five demands of the gospel. Um, five demands of the gospel on our lives that we must steward in our lives. And those demands are that we must believe the gospel, we must grow in faith, we must entrust the gospel, we must gather together, and we must glorify God. There are more things that are required of us, but these are the five that we're going to focus on this evening. Before we get into our, our series, though, let's pray. Uh, Father, we're grateful for all that you've done and for how you determined to save us through our Lord Jesus Christ. We're grateful, Lord, for grace because it is through grace that we are able to respond in faith to the message of the gospel. And so we pray that even as we... Um, as we cover something that is really fundamental, really basic to us, we pray that you would give us attentive ears and, and uh, receptive hearts to the reminders that we have in this evening's message to 
not just believe the gospel, but to live it out as well. We're grateful, Lord, for um, just this opportunity for us to gather together to worship you together. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Okay, well, for our first point, uh, the first thing, the first demand that is on our lives is that we must believe the gospel. Okay, we must believe the gospel. When God gave us the gospel, which is, you know, the good news that he will save us from our sins through the life, death, and resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ, he didn't do so just so that people could hear it and ignore it. You know this. When God gave us the gospel, he gave it to us that we might hear and believe. In John 6, Jesus describes himself to the people who sought him out after the feeding of the 5,000 and They were interested in following after him because, well, who wouldn't be interested in a guy who could feed 5,000 people with just a little bit of bread and some fish? It's like, you know, free food. It's like the thing that appeals to all of our hearts. And so they were seeking him out because he had all this free food. But he uses the analogy. uh, He uses the analogy of... um, of him being the bread of life, because bread was a staple food for, their, for that people, right? And so for that people, when they are looking for the thing that will sustain them, they're looking for bread. Right? And so Christ calls himself the bread of life, right? He says, I am the bread of life. So when he does that, he's not saying that because uh, he wants them uh, he's not saying that because he wants them just to think about the food that he just fed them. He wants them to, to realize that he has something better for them, right? that he's offering them something far better. It's not bread that you could just buy with regular money and then you'll eventually be hungry, but it's bread that will lead to eternal life. And so how do they get this bread? How do they get this bread? Well, it's not like when they work for their regular daily provision of bread. Instead, Jesus says in John six twenty nine, this is the work of God, that you believe in him who he sent. You see, when Jesus says that the work of God is that they believe in him, he's not saying that you can earn salvation, you can earn eternal life through their good works. That's what they were asking, right? When you look at John, 20, John 6, 28, they're asking him, like, Lord, how can we earn this? And he's, he's just kind of using their words, and he's saying, well, if you want to earn it, really, the thing that you do is you believe. But he's not saying that belief is a work He's not saying that you earn your salvation or, or that it's a works-based salvation. Jesus is correcting their thinking and just saying, all you really have to do is just believe. If you want salvation, all you have to do is believe. Just as Abraham believed God, and God credited Abraham with righteousness in Genesis 15, 6. So those who will believe in Jesus will be made righteous. Salvation has always been by grace through faith. Right? When we look at Ephesians 2, and we think about salvation being by grace through faith, what does that mean? Well, it means that God gives us the grace to have faith so that he can give us saving grace. And so faith really doesn't do any of the work. Faith doesn't save us. It has always been the grace of God that saves us, right? Because he initiates the saving action to allow our hearts of stone, our dead hearts, to believe. And so when we have that faith, it's all by his grace, right? So faith, is, faith really does nothing. 
right? Faith does nothing. It's all God, right? And that's the point of the gospel, that it is all about God getting everything out of the way to save us. And so what we see here, though, is that there is a demand upon those who hear the good news of the gospel to believe. It's also seen, this demand that the gospel is believed, is also seen at the end of the book of John. In John 20, 30 to 31, John summarizes the whole purpose of his gospel by saying this, Therefore, many other signs Jesus also did in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. You see, the scriptures were not given to mankind so that we can just have more stories about Jesus that make us feel good. Or, uh, you know, they weren't given to us just so that we would have a good example of what well-written literature ought to be. Many major universities offer classes called Bible as Lit because they're analyzing the Bible as a literary, uh, as a literary accomplishment. By the way, don't ever take a Bible as Lit class at a secular university. They're terrible. Uh, don't take them. If no one's ever told you that before, don't ever take a Bible as Lit class. It's full of liberal ideology and false things about the Bible. Don't take it. Anyways, the scriptures were not given either as just some guidelines for a good moral life, right? That's why a lot of uh, grandparents send their grandchildren to church, right? Because they think, hey, go to church. You'll learn good morals. You'll hang out with good people. The scriptures were given to us so that we may believe that Jesus Christ truly is the Son of God. And that belief in him would lead to that forgiveness of sin and eternal life in him. The good news of the gospel is that sins can be forgiven through Christ. And that's something that's not just nice to know, just in case people might want to believe in Jesus. This is crucial for people to know because the consequence of not having sin forgiven is an eternity in hell. Because Romans 6.23 tells us that the wages of sin is death, but the gracious gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. We've earned for ourselves wrath because of our sin. And the very one who is angry at us, the very one who is wrathful towards us, is the one who prevents us from going to hell. He's the one who holds us up. He desires to save us from our sins. He's patient with us, giving us opportunity to repent. That's why 2 Peter 3.9 tells us that the Lord is not slow about his promise, as some consider slowness, but is patient toward you, not willing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Our God is so gracious to us. He desires to save. He holds that offer out for unbelievers for a time. But there will be a time when the Lord will no longer strive with the spirit of man. There will be a time when we will all have to give an account. And either our sins are dealt with and forgiven in Christ, or we will bear the penalty of our sins on our own. And you see, that's why the gospel demands, it demands to be believed. 
This is news that is not meant to be ignored. This is news that is meant to be believed and shared. But even though the gospel demands to be believed, there is a cost that we must consider as well. In Luke 14, the crowds were following after Jesus. And he says to them, in verses 27 to 28, Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? See, this is just a small snippet of what Jesus warns this crowd. But the point of the warning is this. It's easy to say that you believe in Jesus when when the consequences are relatively small on our lives. And when there's little cost to us, it's easy for us to say, yeah, sure, I'll believe Jesus. If you could be a Christian, and all it takes for you to feel like a Christian and look like a Christian to other people is basically praying a prayer, raising a hand, walking down an aisle, showing up to a church building on a Sunday, and maybe also sometime in the middle of the week. Those things are relatively low in terms of commitment level, right? Even in terms of having to stand up for your faith, you can just tell people, like, oh, I'm a Christian, but I don't, I don't act like those other people. I don't believe those things that other people believe. It's a really relatively low commitment. There's not a lot of danger to say, I'm a Christian. But when Jesus says that we are to take up our cross and follow after him. You guys know. This doesn't mean, okay, pull out, your, pull, pull out your, your cross necklaces that you got at your baptism. and Make sure you wear those around all the time. And that's not what he's saying. He's not saying, oh, you know, if you go and get a piercing, make sure you get one of them cross necklaces, I mean, uh, cross earrings and put them, put them in your ear. Right? Bear your cross. That's not what he's saying. Right? When Jesus says that we are to take up our cross, he's saying you got to be willing to give up your life to follow after him. You remember the cross was not a symbol of hope. The cross was a symbol of execution. Right? It was not a symbol of hope. It was a symbol of execution. So when Jesus says, you, ought, you need to take up your cross and follow me, he really, literally is saying, you have to be willing to die for this. Are you willing to die for this? Are you willing to die for the message of the gospel? To be obedient to the gospel. Because that's what Christ is calling us to. Are you willing to die to self and to live no longer for yourself, but for him who died and rose on your behalf? And see, this is the reason why Jesus likens the decision to follow after him to counting the cost to see if you can complete a construction project. Right? If, you, if we decide, hey, we're going to build another church building so that we can have, I don't know, indoor tennis, indoor volleyball, basketball, maybe a swimming pool. Right? If we were to, to decide that, to have a community center with the, some of the funds that we have, do you think that we should just be like, yeah, we're going to do it. We're going to draw up the plans and we're going to commit to doing it, but we don't make sure that we have all the funds? Would that be wise? No, right? Because if we don't have the money, we're going to look pretty foolish. Right? Not only to the people in the congregation, but to our community, too, because we probably would tell them, hey, guys, we're going to build a community center. And they'd be like, yeah, cool, great, we love you. And we're like, oh, we ran out of money. Sorry, we can't follow through. 
Right? That'd be embarrassing. That'd be embarrassing. The other analogy that, that Christ gives later in, in, um, in chapter 14 is, you know, if you're a king and you have an army and you're vastly outnumbered by the king that, that, that wants to go to war with you, you ought to count the cost. You ought to consider whether you can survive this or whether you will die. And if you know that you're going to die, then you ought to send messengers right, and propose terms of peace. Following after Jesus is not something that you can just do without counting the cost. Many people do because of their emotions. Right? They feel all swelled up in emotion because everyone else around them is crying and the lights are dark. You can't see anything. And, and you, know, you have a speaker yelling at them and saying, you must believe, you must believe. And they're like, okay, I will. But will it do anything in your life? Will you actually decide I'm going to follow Jesus. I'm going to give up everything to follow after him. I'm willing to put aside my preferences, my desires for him. Are you willing to love God with all of your heart, with all of your mind, with all of your soul? Or did you just want to get membership so that you can reap the benefits of being in Christian community without truly following after Christ? Why are you here? Are you here just for people? Or are you here for Jesus? Why are you here? For those of you who call yourself Christians tonight, this is something for all of us to consider. Have we considered the cost to following Christ? And have we followed after him as he desires us to follow him? Or are we approaching our faith in our obedience to him, in a buffet-style manner, picking and choosing what we will decide to obey. Now, we don't all follow after Christ like we should. I don't follow after Christ like I should. We all fail, right? We all have weaknesses. And so I'm not saying this to you as someone who's figured it all out, and I'm just trying to make you all feel guilty and, and trying to tell you that I'm better than you. I'm not. Okay, I'm not. But the question is this. If we love him, are we willing to strive to love him? Just strive, right? Try and be faithful to love him as we should. Or are we just living our life the way that we want to live it? If you're here tonight and you're not a Christian, I'm sure that the gospel's demands on our lives might seem a little harsh, might seem a little extreme. And you know what? To an extent, it is. Christians are called to live their lives according to the will and standard of God. But it's not as bad as it sounds because God is the one who helps us grow to be less sinful. He grows us in our love for him and in, the, in our love for the things that matter to him. You know, to be honest, doing what's right helps us live guilt-free. You don't have to wonder about whether someone is going to catch you doing something wrong because, well, you're doing what's right. You don't have to wonder about if anyone's going to care for you because when you're a Christian, you know that God will care for you. Or trusting in him is the thing that soothes our anxious hearts because we know that he's proven to be faithful, that he's proven to who 
uphold all of his promises to the people that he loves. Believing in the good news of forgiveness of sins through Jesus Christ is freedom. It's freedom from slavery to sin. And that's found only in Christ. We now move on to the second demand of the gospel in our lives that we must steward. And that is that we grow in our faith. That we grow in our faith. As we've already hinted at, believing in the gospel is only a part of what defines a Christian. Christians also must grow in their faith. We're kind of like fruit trees. We mature at different rates. Right? Some of us, we grow really fast. Some of us grow a little slower, and that's okay. One person may hear the gospel, believe it, desire to know about God so much that they take on the appearance of someone who's been walking with Jesus for many, many years. Other people might hear the gospel, they might believe it, and their progress is a little slow. Right? Years down the line, and they're still still struggling a little bit, still struggling in their understanding. And, you know, that's okay, too. That's okay, too. There are both in the body of Christ, right? We can't expect everyone to be a supernova and just, like, voraciously devour the scriptures and become a leader within the year. There are people who take a little more time to mature as well, and that's okay. But relative rates of maturity aside... What is most important in the Christian life is that Christians are growing and that we're striving to grow. In Hebrews 5, 12 to 14, the author of Hebrews addresses believers who've been a little lax in growing in their faith, and he tells them this, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God. And you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the words of righteousness, for he is an infant. But solid food is for the mature, who because of practice have their senses trained to discern both good and evil. What the author of Hebrews wants his audience to know is that they need to grow up. They need to grow up. That where they are in their faith, even when we take various uh, rates of maturity into account, is lacking. For those who are slower in their Christian maturity, they might hear this idea of people develop at different rates, and they're just like, hey, I'm just a little slower in maturing. But the question is, the question that they must ask themselves is, are you actually striving to grow? Or are you just hoping that over time, God will just change you, that God will just grow you? Are you just hoping that exposure to sermons and hanging out with other Christians and occasional Bible reading will eventually lead to God growing you in your faith? Is that our attitude? Sometimes it is. Sometimes it is. You know, these resources that we have at our fingertips, they certainly are helpful, right? I'm not going to, I've told you this before, I'm not going to tell you don't listen to, more, don't listen to other sermons. I'm not going to tell you uh, don't hang out with other Christians. I'm not going to tell you those things. It's because they can help us. They can grow us. 
But if you're just kind of consuming the Bible based off of other people's study, just kind of passively as you're doing other things, we're leaving a lot on the table in terms of how we can grow because we're just, we're just hoping that minimal exposure to these things will eventually make us mature. If you are at the dinner table and you're just watching other people eat their vegetables and you're just kind of nibbling on a kernel of corn here and a single pea here, it doesn't really do you any good, right? You're not getting the same nutrients. Just because other people are eating their vegetables doesn't mean that you're getting any of their benefit, right? right? Contact credit, being in the presence of it doesn't exactly help. You have to consume it yourself. If you want to be mature, you've got to pursue the Lord on your own. You have to take the steps to pursue the Lord on your own. You know, Christian maturity, it's a little tricky to evaluate. But let me caution you that all the outward actions of Christian maturity are not necessarily the most accurate measurement tools by which we determine maturity. Usually that's how we evaluate things just when we're looking at each other. But if we evaluate our maturity on outward action alone, we shouldn't be surprised if there are going to be people who are with us for a season and they say that they're Christians, they do Christian things, they hang out with us, they pray with us, but then when trouble strikes and they can't wrap their mind around why God would allow something into their lives and they decide to leave, we shouldn't be surprised that they left. We shouldn't be surprised that they're angry at God and that they reject him. Why? Because anyone can be good. Anyone can, can, can get caught up in doing things with their friends at church. If your friends are serving and you want to hang out with them, why wouldn't you serve too? If your role model in church leads worship, helps with AV, teaches Sunday school, and so on and so forth, and they're seen as this really responsible and mature person, wouldn't you want to model your life after them too? Wouldn't you aspire to be like him or her? And to be honest, would it really matter if you had a personal walk with Christ so long as you're doing all these things? Not really, right? Because all we were really looking for is people to say like, oh, wow, you're just like so-and-so. Or, oh, wow, you're doing so much. You must be so godly. You must be so mature. You see, outward acts of service and demonstration of leadership might be, an, it might be, might be an indicator of maturity. But what's an even better indicator requires some self-reflection. Romans 8 gives us a paternity test of sorts. In verses 5 through 8, Paul says this, For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For the mindset on the flesh is death, but the mindset on the Spirit is life and peace. Because the mindset on the flesh is hostile toward God. For it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh are not able to please God. Skip down with me to verses 12 through 17. 
So then, brothers, we are under obligation not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the practices of the body, you will live. For as many as are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children also heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. My friends, are we of the flesh? Do we do the deeds of the flesh? Are we known and characterized by the deeds of the flesh? You can look at Galatians 5 for that. Or are we of the Spirit? Are we of the Spirit? Are we being led by the Spirit? Now think about your life. Are you being led by the Spirit to love Jesus more, to want to grow, to be like him more, to take those sinful attitudes and thoughts that you know you have and put those to death, to confess those to Christ and say, Lord, I'm sorry. I shouldn't have thought those things. Help me to think differently. Help me to respond differently to my circumstances. What are we? Are we fleshly or are we of the Spirit? If you still act according to the flesh and you care very little for obedience to Christ, there is really good reason for you to examine yourself today to see if you're a Christian who struggles with sin or if you're just a Christian in name only, but indeed you prove yourself to be of the flesh, what are you? What are you? Galatians 5, the latter part, the good part, verses 22 to 24, tells us what we do need to be maturing in if we are of the Spirit. It says here, but the fruit of the Spirit is love joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus crucified the flesh with its past passions and desires. If we are of the Spirit, we ought to be growing in these things, and not just some of these things. Like, oh, I'm growing in love. I'm growing in goodness. But, you know, patience, eh, not really growing in that, right? It's the fruit, singular, singular of the Spirit, which means that we should be growing in all these areas, not just some of them, all of them. Even in a relatively young believer who, is maybe, who maybe has a, a relatively slower rate of maturity than others, right, we should be able to see some of these fruits in their lives. Right? We should see this fruit in their lives that they're growing incrementally here, or that there is some life change. Christian character matters. Our commitment to put off the old man and to put on the new man through the help of the Holy Spirit matters. That's why in Ephesians 4, 17 to 23, in Colossians 3, 1 to 11, Paul tells his respective audiences that they are no longer to live like they used to before they were saved. 
because of what Christ has done for them, they are to live differently. They must live differently. They are to be more like the new creations that he made them to be. So, brothers and sisters, if we are to be good stewards of the gospel, we have to make sure that we're growing, not just in head knowledge, but also in character. Character, character, character. Our character matters. If we grow in our knowledge, but we fail to grow in being like Christ, we've still failed. We've not done the work that we needed to do. We're not becoming more like Christ. We're not being transformed by the truth like we ought to be. Romans 12 reminds us that we are to be transformed, right? Not, be, not to be conformed to this world, but to be transformed. That we are to renew our minds. Are we being changed into the image of Christ? Or no? Right? Even when we talk about change, right, the question of change what are we changing into? In biblical counseling, a lot of times we talk to people about change. Or we're trying to aim for life change for them. But is it not true that in trying to change people, we can get them to only focus on behaviors? Right? It's absolutely true that we can only focus on behavior. But if we only focus on behavior and we don't deal with the heart, what happens? We raise for ourselves some Pharisees. We have people who do things just for the sake of appearing good, but they've not had any heart change. And so the direction that we point people in, and this is not just a counseling thing, but this is a discipleship thing in general. Brothers and sisters, the direction that we try and help people to change is towards Christ. What are we trying to get them to change into? Right? To be conformed into the image of Christ. That's what we're trying to do. Right, if you're here and you're wondering, what is joint heirs here for? What is the purpose of this group? What is our direction? What is our focus? Let me tell you, our focus is that we make disciples who observe all that Christ has commanded and that we all become conformed to the image of Christ. That's why we're here. Can you get behind that mission? Can you get behind that vision? This is what we're here for. We, don't need, we ought not need to rely on clever slogans that we come up with every year saying, this year is a missions year. This year is a local evangelism year. This year is a blah, blah, blah year. This year we're going to focus on prayer. Brothers and sisters, if we are maturing in Christ, we ought to be doing all of those things. Not just because the pastor came up with this vision for the year, and we're going to go pursue that. Our goal in this fellowship group is to make disciples, right? To all become conformed to the image of Christ. Can you get behind that? Do you believe that that's what we ought to be doing? If so, let's go. Let's go. Let's work. More can be said on this for sure. As you can tell, I'm quite passionate about this. But for the sake of time, we got to move on. I've already kind of hinted at it already. 
Number three, we must entrust the gospel. This is the third demand of the gospel on our lives that we must steward, that we entrust the gospel. Turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy 2, verses 1 to 2. You, therefore, my child, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. In the things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. As Paul awaits execution, these words which we just read are some of the final instructions that Paul gives to Timothy. And in a similar way, right, when it comes to final words, it ought to catch our attention too. What are we to do? The things that we've heard, the things that we've learned, we entrust these to other people who will in turn entrust the truth to others. And learning more about God should never be about us and us alone. It should never be purely for our own benefit. We learn more about God so that we can pass on what we know to fellow Christians. If we only learn for ourselves, the rest of the church does not benefit. Right? We cannot grow stronger together because some people aren't getting fed. In Titus 2, 11 through 15, Paul instructs Titus, and he says this, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us that denying ungodliness and worldly desires, we should live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us all, or sorry, he might redeem us from all lawlessness and purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good works. These things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority. Let no one disregard you. These summarize, these last words in chapter 2 summarize Paul's initial charge. Or Paul's initial charge, the reason why we name our women's discipleship ministry Titus 2, is that the older instructs the younger. Right? And it's for the ladies, yes, but also for the men too. Right? That's the words of sound doctrine are passed down from generation to generation right, so that we would have mature believers in all, in all levels of our Christ, of our, of our church. The truth that we receive, we live out so that other generations would also live them out and model them for the generations beyond them too. If we do not demonstrate the great power of the gospel to forgive sins and make sinners more like Jesus, future generations will not believe that the gospel has power to save either. We have to live like it matters. We have to live like it has an impact. If we're going to entrust these truths to other people, we have to live as if it's worth entrusting to others. It's worth passing down. If we don't, why would they believe? Why would heaven sound good to them? Why would they be motivated to pursue the forgiveness of their own sins? Well, make no mistake, we're not responsible for them believing. We're not responsible for saving people, right? God alone is responsible for saving people. But we are responsible for showing people why this gospel is real, why it ought to be believed, why it ought to be obeyed. Our testimony to the world that God can change lives through the gospel begins with how the gospel changes us. If we say that we are Christians and that our lives have been changed by the gospel, but we continue to be the grudgy, lazy, angry people that we already were before we got saved, 
how do we demonstrate that the gospel has done anything for us? If there's no change, why would anyone want to believe? If we bring people to church, but at home we're monsters, why would our family members want to believe in Jesus? They just think, you think you're better than me? You're no better than me. I see you. I know you. You're no better than me. Why would I want to give up my life for a Savior who obviously can't save you? Why would an unbeliever want Jesus when they can stay the way that they are? Look just like you and have arguably a better quality of life than you. Now, if you push back and say, well, it's because their eternity is at stake. Because if they don't, they'll go to hell. Well, dear Christian, if that's you, if you've not stewarded the gospel well in your own life to the point where you can entrust the gospel to others and you've remained mostly in your sins, why would they believe in hell? Why would they believe in hell? You don't live like you believe it's real. You don't live like you believe that the gospel's real. Why should they? But if you do believe it's real, if you do act like it's real, then great. Praise the Lord. Excel still more. Because when Christ called us to make disciples of all nations, we are to do so, yes, through baptizing them. And don't miss this. Uh, next slide, please. Uh, Matthew 28. Um, don't miss this. Right? We baptize, but we also teach them to observe all that Christ has commanded. Not just some of it, all of it. All of it. All of it. And if we are going to pass down and guard the truths that have been handed to us by others, to others, then we have to make sure that we ourselves are observing all that Christ has commanded us. Okay, again, I'm not preaching this to you as if I've mastered this. I am in progress too, okay? I am in progress too. But this is the type of mentality that we have to fight for. This is the type of mentality that we have to strive for, that I am going to do whatever it takes to try and please the Lord in everything, that the gospel matters so much that I'm going to do the more painful things, to deny myself so that I may please the Lord. None of us are going to do this perfectly, but this is the standard to which we strive, to be like Christ, to observe all that he has commanded us. As we do so, we are to make sure that we entrust these truths to other faithful people who will in turn entrust the truths to others. These truths have to go out. They have to go to other people. Here at Joint Heirs, we do have a wide range of age groups with us. Right? We have older brothers and sisters here with us. We have younger brothers and sisters here with us. And I understand that for some of you here who are older in the fellowship group, that sometimes you might feel as if you cannot relate to some of the younger people in our fellowship group. You don't know how to talk to them. You don't know how to relate with them. You're not sure what to say to them. And there might even be some times where you are tempted to look at them and you roll your eyes and you're like, man, you are so immature. But remember, you were once like them too. You were once like them too. And someone, hopefully, had come along in your life and they walked with you. They spent time with you. They tried to show you what 
Christian living ought to look like. And so instead of looking down upon these younger ones and, in, and just saying, like, oh, someone else will deal with them. I don't have to. All right, let's make it our goal as a fellowship group to care for every single person here. Again, if the aim of this fellowship group is to make disciples, then we ought to make disciples. You don't need to program this. In fact, in fact, when I was in my doctoral classes and we're sitting in, in the classroom and we're talking about what has worked in our churches, what has not worked in our churches, there are pastors who have been in ministry far longer than I have who are saying, Discipleship is a culture that must, that must develop within the hearts of the people. They have to want it. They have to want to pursue it. You cannot program discipleship because it will eventually fade and die. Discipleship is a lifestyle. It's not just something, it's not just a program that we develop and that we put people into and then, whoop, mature Christian comes out the other end. We have to be committed to this. Sure, for some of you older ones, you do need fellowship with your friends and your peer group. That's fine. Okay, that's fine. But don't pretend like you don't need the younger ones and that you just need more of people your age. That you need them just as much as they need you because they'll remind you of stuff that you've forgotten. Right? Some of the things that you they might be going through, you might, you might think, <laughs> That's not even that important. In the grand scheme of things, whatever. Who cares? But should we have that attitude and that mentality towards our younger brothers and sisters? No. We ought to be compassionate. We ought to be empathetic. It should teach us, actually, to be more gracious. It should teach us how to get on eye level with them, to see the world through their eyes, and to minister the gospel to them in their need. Right, if I were up here trying to minister to you and all I'm saying to you is you know, the, the hard exegetical truths and I'm just pounding you with theology and I don't care about your life and I don't care about you, will you grow? Will you change? Yeah, maybe, maybe a little bit. Right, but if I'm just giving you this hard theology, nothing else, I don't care about you, I don't care about what you're going through, you're not going to grow in the areas where you need to grow. Right? You're still going to be weak in some areas. So remember that some of our younger, our younger folks, our younger believers here in this fellowship group, they need us, and we need them too. Nobody has figured out the Christian life perfectly. We need every single church member to take an interest in being in each other's lives so that we can all Press on towards being like Christ. No member is unnecessary. And by the way, that's the reason why we encourage membership too. It's not because we like to report that we have X amount of members in our church, but it's because membership is that formal commitment. Right? It's that formal commitment to the church, and we get to commit to you too. To say, you're committing to us, we're going to commit to you. We're going to pray for you. We're going to walk alongside you. We're going to care for you. We're going to make sure that you grow to be more like Jesus Christ. That's the reason why we push membership. Right? People 
in Acts, right, the early church, they knew how many people were in their number. Right? It showed them how many leaders they needed to go out and minister to those people who were in their number. And that's why we have membership too. So we know where to send people to go care for other people. We have our weaknesses, of course, right? but that's why we encourage membership. Anyways, that aside, we should not despise each other. We should all love each other. We should all care for each other. Younger believers in our group, college students, I know that sometimes talking to old folks can be a little intimidating. So just, just try and get to know us. Give us some grace too, right? If we're awkward, well, some of us are awkward, but that's okay, right? We're all a little awkward. Let's all strive to love on each other, to care for each other, to figure out what's going on in each other's lives. This leads to the fourth demand of the gospel on our lives that we must steward in our lives, and that is that we gather together. That we gather together. This is related to what we just discussed in terms of the importance of entrusting uh, the gospel to others, but it's a truth that is important for us to be reminded of nonetheless. Hebrews 10, 23 to 25 says this. <clears throat> Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. Not forsaking our assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. Many of you are familiar with this passage because it used to be the uh, theme verse for ETC. But the reason why I want to reiterate this as an aspect of stewardship of the gospel is because part of the stewardship of the gospel is how we help each other Hold fast to the truth. Hold fast to the convictions that, yes, Jesus did die and rise again. And we must live differently because of that. There are a lot of times that you can do that by yourself, right? That you can remind yourself of the truth when you're struggling. But there will be a time, if you've not experienced it already, where no matter how much you try and remind yourself of the truth, no matter how much you try and counsel yourself, where you're still going to struggle, where you won't be able to get out of it on your own, where you know the truth, but you're like, I still can't hold on to it right now. And that's where the body of Christ comes in. Are these significant trials where despite our best efforts, we're going to lose sight of God, right? That's why God gave us the body, right? When one member hurts, the rest of the body hurts with it. We are here for each other. And that's why we strive to gather together. Our gathering together enables us not only to remember these truths, but it encourages us to act upon those truths too. I mean, sometimes we look at singing as just like eh, something that we do. I know at least for CVM camp, the kids just think, oh, singing. It's just that time where we stand the whole time and we sing. I mean, it's true. We do stand a lot when we sing. But what are we doing when we're singing? We're singing truths to one another. We're singing truths to one another. Right? And when we sing, we ought to sing loud. Why? Not for ourselves. Not to make a ruckus, but so that the rest of us can hear. So that we can minister to one another. I've been moved to tears when I hear people singing behind me. And I recognize their voices. And I know what's going on in their lives. And I hear them singing those truths out loud and clear. Nice and strong. 
Why does it move me to tears? Because it reminds me that as we sing these songs, we're trying to remind ourselves of these things that our hearts are tempted not to believe. And when you hear a believer who is struggling, who is hurting, sing out, great is thy faithfulness. Morning by morning, new mercies I see. Or something like, how great is our God. Sing with me, how great is our God. Or rejoice, the Lord is king. And when you hear a believer singing those things with all their heart, that is encouraging. Right? Even singing can encourage the body. And even being together, right? I know right now I'm preaching the word to you. You're listening. Hopefully you're engaging. But if you're not, I understand. Right? But even after the singing, even after the preaching, what do we do? Right? We, we talk. We try and meditate on the word. Right? This is what we do to encourage one another. Now, I understand. Now, I understand that you come to, or that anytime you come to church, it requires some sacrifice. On Friday nights, it requires that you come to church after a long school week or work week rather than go home and rest, rather than go out and have some fun. On Sundays, it requires that you wake up relatively early compared to the work or school week to worship God together with other people. But brothers and sisters, don't forget why we do it. Okay, when we gather, it's not so that you have just a meeting place to meet all your friends before you go out to lunch. Okay, when we gather we're here to worship the Lord together, to spur one another on towards love and good deeds. There is no substitute to the corporate gathering of God's people. I understand. I know that we have people on Zoom this evening. I understand that there are reasons why people cannot legitimately come to worship God together, and that's okay. I'm not targeting that. And I'm not trying to set up some sort of legalistic demand that you always show up on Friday night and that you always show up on Sunday and that you don't miss any of them because that's not what Hebrews 10 is getting at. It's saying that you ought not to regularly forsake the assembling of meeting together. Right? That should not be a regular habit for us. When we choose to forsake our assembling together, we miss out on opportunities to encourage and to exhort one another, on opportunities to care for one another, on opportunities to have meaningful conversation about life and godliness. I'm not blind. I know that sometimes after the sermon, even though we have discussion group questions, that sometimes we're not focused on having intentional conversations about the message. And I'm not targeting nobody. If you feel targeted, I'm not targeting you. But what I'm saying is, I know that some people might say, why would I bother come to fellowship to listen to a message and not have any kind of spiritual conversation? Right, some people might have that attitude. Like, well, I'm not getting the spiritual conversation, so I might as well stay home. It's okay for us to talk about our weeks and to talk about prayer requests. That's all right. I, too, have been in groups like that. Okay? There's room for that. That's part of how we care. But if we think, well, that's the end of the night, and there's going to be no other spiritual conversations after, well, no, after groups are done, we can still have those spiritual conversations, right? But you wouldn't know that unless you were here. 
Again, I'm talking to most of the people that are here, but still, right? The point is still, hey, if you're here after prayer groups are done, don't just, I mean, you, if you need to, feel free to go home and rest. Right? But if you still have some energy, find somebody. Talk to them. Ask them how they're doing. Maybe, maybe, right, maybe you'll be able to have a conversation with them where you can know how to encourage them or at least know how to pray for them or even set up a meeting so that you can get to know them uh, and, and hear, hear what's going on in their lives later on in the week. But you wouldn't know that unless you were here. You wouldn't know that unless you value coming to be with God's people. Right? That's why on Sundays too, right, don't just come and then jet. Don't just come and then go hang out. Right? Be intentional with that time. You can still hang out. Right? I'm not saying you can't have fun. I love hanging out like you guys do. I used to stay here all the way till dinner time on Sundays. And those were great times. I love those times. But we also have to be intentional too. Okay? We don't come to church just for us. Okay? We don't come to church just for us. We come to church so that we can minister to other people. None of us should come to church with the idea that we come to sit back and be ministered to as if we're the only people that matter, as if we're the only ones who need ministering to. Whenever we come to church, we ought to be looking for opportunities not only to be ministered to, but to serve other people also. Right? That's why we are here, not to consume, but to serve. I want to say, say more, but we've got to move on. The fifth demand of the gospel on our lives is that we must glorify God. This is something that we have to steward, this idea that we have to glorify God. You know, after all that we've seen in terms of stewardship of the gospel in our lives this evening, it can all basically be summed up into these two words. If we are committed to allowing the gospel to change our lives, to living it out in all of our lives, then our commitment is ultimately to glorify God with all of our lives, right? That is the stewardship that we're called to have. And we do so knowing that we've been bought with a price. Therefore, we ought to honor God in the way that we live our lives. In 2 Corinthians 5, 14 to 15, we are reminded that whatever, uh, sorry, we are, we are reminded that our love for the Lord, right, our love for the Lord is the thing that will cause us to live no longer for ourselves, but for him who died on our behalf. The love of Christ controls us. It compels us to not live for ourselves. It compels us to have an other's mindset rather than a me, me, me mindset. We don't live just for us. That's typically what we do. Right? We're focused on us, what we get out of it, how we're feeling. It's not about you. You've heard me say this many times, many ways, but essentially it always comes back down to this. The gospel is not about you. It never has been. If we think that the gospel is about us, we're being selfish. The gospel is not about us. It is about God. It's always been about God. Who saves us? Not us. God. Why did he save us? Not so that we can be better, necessarily, 
right? Not so that we can feel fulfilled, f- feel fulfilled, but so that he could be glorified, so that he can build his kingdom, so that he can bring the gospel to the ends of the earth. It's not about you. It's about him. It's about him. And that's why we are reminded in 1 Corinthians 10.31 that whatever we do, whatever we do in this life, whether it's something as simple as eating or drinking or whatever it is that we do, we are to do all to the glory of God. Our life is not our own. Everything that we ought to do in this life should be done for him and for his glory. Because what we think, what we say, and what we do in this life is a reflection of the gospel that is supposed to be at work in us. If you're ever faced with a moral dilemma in terms of should I do this or should I do that, you ought to think, will it glorify God? Will it be a good reflection of the gospel in my life? And if the answer is no, then as hard as it might be, for the sake of the gospel, we choose the harder path. Nobody likes paying taxes, right? Taxes are a pain. They eat a, a huge chunk of our, of our earnings. Right? Nobody wants to pay taxes. As a believer, just as application, right? as a believer though, for the sake of the gospel, you ought to be as faithful as you can be to truthfully report your taxes, even if it costs you a lot. Why? Because you love Christ. And obedience to him means more than a few extra thousand dollars in your pocket. What matters more to you, honoring Christ or your money? Glorifying God in everything that we do is essential. We ought to check our hearts. We ought to check our attitudes. That's, of course, a high calling, but if we can rewire the way that we think about how we approach our lives so that we can be a faithful steward of the gospel in every action, in every attitude, in every thought, then we can be found faithful in showing the world that Jesus truly can save and change us. By his grace, we will, we will be able to please him in all things. But it's that mentality that you have to have. It's a commitment that you have to be devoted to. That no matter how hard it takes, no matter how many friends you lose, no matter how difficult it's going to make your life, you are going to be determined to please the Lord. It's hard. But that's what we ought to do. If we love Jesus, then we ought to love him more than we love these other things. Otherwise, those things become what? Idols. Don't let those things become idols. They're good things. But don't love anything more than you love Jesus. Don't let anything cause you to compromise in terms of following after Christ the way that he would want you to follow him. If he wants you to follow him a certain way, if you know what the scriptures tell you to do in terms of how you ought to follow him and live your life, then you do that. Not whatever other people tell you. Okay? You do that. Study the scriptures. Be Bereans. 
understand our responsibility before God in terms of what we ought to do in this life, how we ought to act in this life and do that. Our focus this evening has been to show how the gospel truly is central in all of our lives. It does not just have the power to save us, but it also has the power to grow us and to change us so that we can become more like our Savior, Jesus Christ. And as such, we cannot forget that the gospel must be stewarded in our lives just as much as any of the other gifts that the Lord gives us in this life. This evening, we quickly went through how the gospel can be thought of as having demands on our lives. There were five of them that we were reminded of. We were reminded that we are to believe the gospel and that that belief in the gospel leads to a desire to grow in our faith. And as we grow in our faith, we all bear the responsibility to entrust what we've learned or what we've heard to other people. And part of that task of entrusting the gospel to others is discipleship, yes, but it's also seen in our faithfulness to gather together as the body of Christ, to spur each other on towards love and good deeds, to spur each other on towards Christ. And finally, we're, we were reminded that as we gather together with the body or even on our own, that our goal in all of life, no matter how hard it is, is to glorify God. Now, even though much of this evening was review and a reminder for many of you, I pray that what we reviewed was helpful, that it got you to think a little bit more about some of these familiar truths that we might kind of casually shove aside, maybe, you know, maybe not intentionally and maliciously, but accidentally, and that we were challenged and encouraged to conform more of our lives to be like Christ. We never outgrow our need for the gospel, so let's pray that we would live as if we are truly dependent on it. Okay, let's pray. Father, we're grateful for this evening, for these reminders of gospel truth, and for a quick review of some of the commands that you've given to us. Lord, you've given us as Christians a lot of responsibilities, and it can be daunting to look at all the things that we ought to do and to even see all the different attitudes that we ought to have, how we ought to be like Christ and when, when we do that, it can be overwhelming because we're looking at the perfect example of Christ, the perfect standard of your law, and we're like, I can't do this. But Father, we know that you're not asking us to be perfect. We know that you're not asking us to do this on our own strength, but you are the one through the Holy Spirit who enables us, who gives us the grace to live more like Jesus. And so we pray, Lord, that you help us that you help us to examine our hearts, to see how we can become more like Christ in our lives. Help us to steward the gospel well, Lord, no matter how hard it is, so that we might be pleasing to you. In your son's name we pray. Amen.